Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast in association with Property Week. My name's Andrew Teacher and I'm joined this week by Harry Hyman, who's the founder and CEO of Primary Health Properties. And in this week's episode, we're going to be talking a lot about real estate, a lot about the health sector, obviously, but we're also going to touch on opera, culture and some of the wider political challenges that are coming up the road. But Harry, you recently signaled your intention to step down from the role that you've had for nearly three decades, and you're appointing Mark Davis into the role known to many for various businesses that he's been a part of, including New River. Fantastic guy and an inspired hire. But how are you finding the current market? Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. Yes, you're right. It's been an eventful period, but I flagged well in advance in 2019 that I was going to do another five years. And that five years is up in April 24. And I'm really delighted that we've identified such a strong candidate as Mark, who's going to join and take over the mantle and drive the business forward. But as you say, I'm very hopeful that I'll be staying in some form of non-executive role um, to be there in the background and make sure this continuity and corporate history is not lost. But having done it for 28 years or thereabouts, I felt it was time to hand on the mantle to someone with a little bit more youthful exuberance than myself. Oh, you've still got a lot of exuberance in you, Harry, and we'll come on to some of that in this podcast. I'm really interested just to go into the weeds on a number of things. But Mark Davis is a really good guy, and that would be a great evolution for the business. But let's dial back before you set up Primary Health Properties. Tell me about your upbringing. Where did you grow up, and what were some of the things that influenced you and influenced how you've approached business and culture and all the other charitable things that you're involved with? Sure. Well, I had a very traditional upbringing with very loving parents who were very keen on education. Is it Jewish upbringing? Yeah. Although now I would say I'm a lapsed Jew, but I'm a cultural Jew. And I think you're always a cultural Jew. That part of you is very difficult to shake. And actually, I don't want to shake it. I'm very happy to be culturally Jewish. Anyway, I went to an extremely good and forceful and pressurized school called Haberdashers in North London and did very well, like many people in my year, and went to Cambridge and had a very traditional degree there, reading geography. I actually couldn't make up my mind as to whether to stay and do research with a view to becoming a teaching fellow. So I tried a year of that and didn't really like it. It was too remote and actually not very exciting. And so at the same time that Margaret Thatcher was elected, believe it or not, I threw in the towel and went off to become a chartered accountant at Pricewaterhouse and qualified a long time ago in 1982. Was that because Maggie? What was that? No, but I think, to be honest, my father was an accountant and I've always felt that it represented a good professional education, whether it still does today as a moot point. A good Jewish career. Yeah, exactly. If you couldn't be a doctor or a dentist, or a lawyer, you could be an accountant. So I duly became an accountant with the fabulous firm of Pricewaterhouse, very good training and background. And then I was seduced and inveigled off to join a really remarkably entrepreneurial and brilliant man, Michael Goddard, who ran a listed business called Baltic. To start with, it was called Baltic Leasing, and that's what we did. And at 27, I became, maybe I was the youngest quoted finance director for a while, But Baltic was a great training ground. We did all sorts of things to do with finance, structured finance, fund management, leasing, property finance. It was a very demanding environment. Michael was a brilliant boss, but very demanding. And I stayed with him for 11 years. And after 11 years, I'd got quite interested in having my own business. Mm. We survived things like the 1990 recession, which was altogether terrible. 
Remember the days when we were shadowing the Deutschmark with Lord Lamont, as he is now, and John Major, saying that following the ERM was everything they held dear, and then two days later we were out of the ERM. And we had companies going bust that we'd led money to day in, day out. And that was a very, very challenging period. And I kind of figured it was going to be that hard. I might as well do it for my own account. And so I left because I discovered that quite an unusual fact that GPs in Britain are independent contractors, but they have their rent reimbursed to them, which goes back to the days of the creation of the NHS, by the NHS. And I knew that the NHS was an agency of the British government. So here was a gilt-edged stream of income where the tenant was not gilt-edged, but just a group of professionals. And there was obviously a margin for understanding that. And so I got some backing from some far-sighted individual backers and started life with my own company, Nexus, as the manager of what went on to become Primary Health Properties. And we then listed on the AIM market in 1996. And we were one of the first companies to go on to AIM. And we raised the princely sum of £16 million with £4 million of convertible loan stock to the Royal Bank of Scotland, who were our bankers at that time. And off we started. Oh, well, and you took it onto the LSE a couple of years later, didn't you? 98, yeah. And that certainly opened it up. And what were some of the challenges at that point? I'm guessing late 90s, you're stepping into Blair territory. There was probably a lot more exuberance and positivity than around the early 90s crash. Well, you're right. I'll come back to a personal challenge that I had around that time. But on the business front, I remember sitting at home in 1997 with Tony Blair about to win what I think was a 200-plus seat majority and thinking that that would be the end of PHP and that everything would be financed by the state. But Blair and Brown were actually quite far-sighted, and they really capitalised on the private finance initiative that Norman Lamont introduced in '93. And in fact, the 12 or so years that they had in power were some of the largest increases in healthcare spending that this country's seen. And that was very good for PHP. So it shows you that Sometimes it's good to understand the second bounce of the ball rather than the first bounce of the ball. I'd actually also just gone through quite tricky treatment, chemotherapy for some non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which I had in 95 and 96, which was a completely catastrophic thing to happen. But How did you I, feel? Talk us through when you well, got that I, diagnosis. I, I, what led you to think there was something wrong? Nothing. I had a lump in one of my arms and eventually I got round to going to the doctors because one's always too busy to do anything about things as a man that affects your health. And this far-sighted doctor said, oh, you better go off and have some tests. I had some tests. They all went, well, I don't really understand what's going on here. Why don't you just go to the Marsden to have it checked out? And I thought, the Marsden? Why am I going there? So anyway, I went there and this wonderfully gifted consultant surgeon saw me, David Cunningham, and he said, come back in a week's time for your results. And I went back in a week's time and he said, well, it's kind of like good news and bad news, Harry. So the lump in your arm is a benign lipoma. That means a fatty lump. And we'll cut that out. But unfortunately, you have a tumour the size of a grapefruit between your heart, your lung and your windpipe. And I said, wow. Gosh. So I said, well, why don't I feel ill? He said, I've got no idea, but we have to start your chemotherapy today, which we did. And that was a period of my life that I think was quite transformational because I certainly was determined not to let this overcome my ambition to grow the company, look after my family, 
who were then very young. What was the situation with your kids at that point? How old were they? So they they were 10 and 7. And fortunately, the treatment worked. And here I am all those years later. And I think that cancer quite often is thought of as a death sentence. Sometimes, sadly, it can be. But medical advances are really making enormous improvements in treatment. So about 20 years after my treatment, because I'm still in touch with David, he said, you know, when you presented with your non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you were 50% likely to survive. And funnily enough, he never told me that at the time. He said, today, if you presented with those same conditions, you'd be 99% certain to be okay. Now, isn't that amazing? And the whole difference has been made by medical research, which is why one of the charities I like to support is Dr. Cunningham's Research Fund for Lymphoma, because I think medical research is so important. And actually, going back to PHP, rather than financing fleets of forklift trucks or aircraft or motor fleets, actually building and owning medical centres that are good for the wellness of the people, I think is quite a good thing to do. You know, we obviously make money out of it, and that's good for our stakeholders. But at the end of the day, we are trying to improve the health of the population, both here in Britain and in Ireland, where we have a small part of our portfolio. Mm. Just going back to PFI, what's been the downside of that when you think about the bill that the taxpayers had to foot for all sorts of public buildings over the years? Well, the first thing I'd say is that primary health is not actually PFI. It's pure and simple sale and leaseback finance. But PFI itself has got a terrible reputation, in part because nobody saw interest rates going from 8% down to zero. And when some of these contracts were renegotiated, there was very heavy penalties to be paid for refinancing the debt. And not enough thought was given into how the specification of the services work so that you have these stories of it costing £1,000 to change a light bulb because no one had figured out what to do. But on PFI's defence side of the balance sheet, the asset side, it did bring about the largest amount of construction and delivery of hospitals since the Second World War, which has to be good somewhere along the line. And I think the lessons of early stage PFI have been learned. And it wouldn't surprise me to see it come back in some shape or form if we have a new Labour government in a few months or years' time. But should the focus now not be much more on community-based primary care? I mean, it's a bit like asking Turkeys to vote for Christmas. Yeah, well, that's that's, the the answer to that. That's that's what you call a long hop on the off stump. So I'm going to smash that over the boundary for six (laughs) and say that you're exactly right. And the future's not really in hospitals, which should be reserved for trauma, for pandemics, as we've sadly seen in the last few years in emergency treatment and a hell of a lot more of what historically couldn't have been done in primary care should be done in primary care, which means that the old-fashioned idea of a doctor in a converted house is gone and what we need are modern purpose-built hub core primary centres with 20 doctors, 100 healthcare professionals and a whole suite of therapies that can stop people from going to hospital and make their treatment much more localised and relevant. So here's a statistic for you. There's something like 3 million type 2 diabetics in the country, 95% of of which is all reversible through diet. So teaching people how to eat or what to eat and how much to eat and getting better exercise could pay enormous dividends for the country. And that phrase is called social prescribing, which is now very often the treatment that people are given. But we're still not really doing it, though. This stuff isn't taught. It's not promoted fully anyone that goes and sees a GP that's got some sort of nutritional issue, 
they're not going to get that advice largely from a GP. Well, you know, there's been the introduction of some weight loss drugs, which is quite radical and may change things very dramatically. And I think it all depends on the quality of the practice. I and guess actually, we'll see in five or six years once these things have been road tested at a population level, won't we, whether they actually cause any massive side effects or not. Yeah, well, I'm not a qualified bioscientist to no, say. N- nor, but, nor am I, but sometimes there's, sure. there's this thing called too good to be true right yeah, and, no, and i think absolutely. and i think the underlying problem i'm sure these drugs clearly work otherwise they wouldn't have been fda approved no it's to po- eat less and drink less and but, do but, more exercise but, but the point is that a lot of these health issues aren't solely down to people shoving a load of big macs down their throat each week it's all sorts of other things that combine and well it's lifestyle and it's all to yeah. do with economic deprivation as well which is why i'm very pleased personally to support the this is purpose program which is all about leveling up and you know there are enormous variations in life expectancy so tell us about that. what's that a charitable organization uh it's run by justin greening and lord wormsley and what it attempts to do is to implement the government policy and engage companies in trying to help with the leveling up agenda so for example a man born in blackpool would expect to live 25 years less believe it or not than a man living in knightsbridge That's pretty extraordinary. And it begs all sorts of questions about equality and democracy. And we need to do more to reduce those differences. But but that's exactly my point, Harry, in terms of the focus on education and provision of healthcare, because Mm. you and I are both very privileged and very lucky that our lives allow us to seek private healthcare if we need it. And certainly the schooling that we both had was such that well, I eventually got there. <laughs> I think my school was particularly good on the food front. But the point, though, is that, as you say, health is now essentially a class divide. Uh, to some extent, I think that's right. And it's noticeable that, put it another way around, healthcare requirement is much higher in areas of high economic deprivation. And, you know, you can go to some parts of the country that are real eye-openers in the Waleses and the old industrial towns in England mm. and in parts of Scotland, it actually is quite shocking to see. So in a way, PHP is very happy to play its part in trying to redress that balance. And of course, you need a skilled workforce, you need GPs that care. Well, it must be difficult, though, in some of those places that you mentioned, it must be hard for them to attract talents go and work there. Well, which is why the rented option, which PHP offers, is a much better deal because it doesn't require the GPs to own the medical centre, which is still what the prevalent way is for GPs currently. Shove their pension into the buildings. Yeah, and that's fine if you live in leafy Guildford or St Albans, but perhaps less fine if you're working in Bethnal Green or Blackpool. Mm, I suppose the focus really should be on how we drive these things from the ground up, but it's an interesting challenge. I mean, what's the role, given the short-termism within the current government the previous government well and probably the future government as well should there be a stronger role for businesses for people like yourself that are smart that know people that have got funding that can affect change well the obvious answer is yes and we're pleased to have played our part and we're a bit frustrated that we can't play a stronger part right now because the economics of new developments both here and in ireland don't quite work which requires more rent to be paid in order to cover off the higher cost of interest and Mm. the supply chain issues that we had but leaving that aside there's got to be a democratic process where government is in charge but i think maybe government needs to take a more strategic long-term i mean i I know i'm not saying uh, there shouldn't be a democratic process but again forgive me but i'd argue that a lot of what presents as democracy is very undemocratic right you know people elect governments every five years or so 
with quite vague manifestos in many points. And often a lot of the things that subsequently happen have nothing to do with that electoral process. No, but equally we've seen some of the problems if you give people a real choice on actual issues like Brexit, which was a good example of why perhaps you don't want to put too many issues to the population, in my view, because the Brexit vote was quite a close call and it's quite odd in a way to have something decided on a marginal vote, which is going to determine a large part of the country's future over the next 25 to 50 years. But, I don't but, but again, they much. were influenced largely by the government of the day presenting quite a lot of false information. And it comes back to this point of who you're electing. Correct. But we have a lot of challenges in society today about false information, the veracity of databases, relying on search engines, who says that their data is a true reflection of underlying information. These are quite deep philosophical questions that are only likely to get deeper with artificial intelligence. Mm. Let's bring it back to property for a second, because there'll be some people listening to this that want to hear a little bit about property, so let's not disappoint them, Harry. Coming back to your point, I mean, I think the business model for healthcare real estate is very, very clear, as you say, an overriding weighting towards what's essentially guilt-style income. And I suppose a year ago, or well, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, before the trust mini budget chaos i think look relatively rosy and certainly for a business like yourself outperforming many others and certainly from an income perspective but how do you work now where the risk-free rate is over six percent and it obviously becomes much more tough to finance the sorts of things not just that you're doing but that anyone's doing when you can lock your money up in an instant access savings again and get more money than you're going to get largely from quite risky real estate endeavors well there's a lot of very interesting questions in that and just to deal with them one by one if you go back to the mid 90s and look at the difference between the underlying yield rate and the risk-free rate there's only been two periods in time when that has disappeared one was the global financial crisis in 2008 and the other one is now and so what that says to me is that there's probably we're at a disjunct in the property market when things are taking time to adjust and in my humble view over the next six to 12 months we'll see interest rates reduce as inflation comes off from the temporary peaks that there have been through outside non-british causes like the war in ukraine and something very politician-like here, non-British well, calls it. So well, that's a very Liz Truss well, thing to say. I don't, well, please don't associate me with her. Uh, <laughs> although, although, to be fair, I think she had the right idea, which is that the country needs growth, but going about it in the way they went about it was complete folly to my mind. But there you go. Uh, anyway, to come back to the point you asked me about, I think interest rates will fall, otherwise the whole country will implode. Um, we're already starting to see the impact of the higher interest rates on the housing market yeah. and on consumer demand. And the second point to make is that I don't think we're out of the woods yet in terms of where property prices are. But the masking factor and why things will be fine is that rental growth is coming through loud and clear, strong, not maybe as quick as we'd want because of the lagged impact, but that will help to offset some of the falls that have been in underlying values. And so I see, over time, the re-emergence of this gap. And I just jobbing backwards a bit as well, I think the property market was very, very overheated and life had got too simple. With interest rates at zero, how could you not make money from buying property, real assets, yielding a 3 or 4 or 5% rate? And in reality, 
thank goodness, we put the brakes on acquisitions in early 22 so that we didn't buy a lot of overpriced assets, which would give rise to a massive reduction in 23 and beyond. But to come back to the point you were making, it's not just as simple as buying gilts and looking for a margin. People forget that we have a lot of skill and the platform that we have can deliver a lot of growth by negotiating good rental growth. And that also we deliver quite a lot of services of a property nature to the NHS. So we can certainly handle the exterior management of a building far more efficiently than a practice of doctors can. Mm. We will stick to the preventative maintenance regime. We can have national contracts to deliver services for the buildings, which an individual practice could not do. So we're doing more than providing the money and the bricks and mortar. We're delivering a wraparound service on the maintenance side and also for our investors negotiating a growth in income. So when people say you're a bond proxy and that's why your share price has gone down so much, partly, but actually what they're forgetting is that our income is index-linked, quasi-index-linked, and that's the key to the future for PHP. Yeah, there's another critical issue, and this isn't just a PHP issue, I think it's all of the listed, well not just listed, but real estate universe in total, that investors don't really understand and value asset management or platforms, they're quite jargonistic terms, they don't really mean much to people. No, I think you're right, and you can't just evaluate a property company on NAV net asset value or the number of buildings it's got or simple statistics but, you but, have to put but, in a but, figure but, but for the yet, platform but yet harry yeah. that is precisely how pretty much every major real estate business communicates it's all about nav 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 and then they come on this podcast and moan that investors don't value their well plan. maybe they do but that i think is because property analysts feel themselves mm. forced to comment on nav a better metric perhaps is the ongoing cash flow you know at the end of the day you can't spend nav but you can spend the dividend and cash flow that is generated. And interestingly, the discounted cash flow value of our portfolio is roughly the same now as the NAV. Mm. And that's something people should keep an eye out for. And indeed, the Charter Surveyors Institute has put a lot more emphasis now in values reports in looking at the DCF calculation. And Mike Pruse played his part in lobbying and asking for that to come through. This is the analyst that Jeffrey is known for his hatred of REITs. Oh, uh, I don't think he does hate REITs. I think he believes in specialist REITs. Yeah. And no, if I, you want I, another great example of a platform business, it's Unite. Student uh, housing business. Yeah, which is a platform. I mean, how would you as a private investor go about assembling a portfolio or a share in a portfolio like that? And as a private investor, sure, you could buy one medical center, but how would you have a share in 513 professionally managed by my team of 60 people who are experts at what they do? Oh, no, I think you're right. And I think certainly look at the North American real estate market, it's all about specialist REITs yeah. from prisons to salons and everything in between. And I do think there is a, I mean, I said this before on here that I think a lot of companies aren't getting the premium they probably deserve for the platforms that they've built because they're just pretty poor at communicating it. Well, we have to spend a lot of time communicating. I mean, my team and I have done 200 shareholder presentations uh, <laughs> since February of this year. Uh, That's why you're such a slick podcast guest, Harry. Well, flattery <laughs> will get you everywhere. But, um, you know, it's important to put time and effort into getting the message over that we don't need to be panicked. And sometimes in life, it's best to do very little. Here's a sort of bigger question. Would property companies, some smaller specialist property companies, would they be better off if they were private? Yeah. Yeah, I think you can, you know, in investment trust area, which I know a little bit about, there are a lot of very small investment trusts, and you'd have to query 
what their relevance is. And in the same way, sadly, in a way, the world is very interested in scale. And people want REITs of scale. You know, when we merged with Medics back in 2019, this was a transformational deal for PHP. Not because either company did anything very different, but we suddenly became a business of scale. And that took our portfolios from 1.5 and 800 million to 2.3. And now we're at 2.8, even after some of the setbacks of the last nine months or so. But still, 2.8 is still very small by global REIT standards. I think the enterprise value of some of the larger healthcare REITs in America, which is obviously a different market, is like approaching 40 to 50 billion dollars i mean that's just a different quantum and so much of investment now is about being in companies of scale because they're perceived rightly or wrongly to have a lower risk profile yeah but i mean also i mean i think not just population but also the fact that american doesn't have a national health service of any kind does it so that no no it's a different environment but i just was using that to no it's a fair point so that brings the obvious follow-up question then which is will you be looking at any further mergers and acquisitions over the coming couple of years yeah we always keep a weather eye open with medics it took 12 years of charting their progress in order for a deal to happen maybe there are other deals to happen in the sector and hopefully they won't take 12 years and what do you make about i suppose other specialist reits are there any others that you think will get taken out in the next couple of years either in the offices side well i think there are some that are just too small and their business model has been knocked off course by the rapid like who I'm not going to go into details of this. I think that would be most unfair. Ask me uh, questions on a podcast. Go on. No, you can ask questions, but I think that you can do your own research, listeners, and look at the ones that have got a market cap of maybe under 500 million, because I think below that, the cost of compliance, the cost of having a board, the cost of having PR companies and investor relations mm, yeah. is a big distraction and it costs a lot. And so some of those companies might do better in an unquoted environment and then come back to the market once they've built critical mass. Mm. More broadly then, you mentioned there might be further pain in the property market. What were you referring to, the housing market specifically or commercial more broadly? What do you see as the next couple of years based well, on... I think we're at an interesting turning point. I call it a disjunct. I think there is a wall of foreign money looking at the UK waiting for prices to slide out. And so far, prices in a number of sectors have not moved out as much as you might have expected them to have done. Part that reflects the yield curve, in part it reflects non-debt financed long-only players buying assets, so pension funds, life assurance companies. There's been some articles in the paper about people wanting to buy trophy office assets in London, sovereign wealth funds, Mm. very ultra high net worth individuals who are watching, sitting and watching and waiting because the built environment is not going away. And you think that's falsely inflating values or that's No, I think it's acting it's acting as a a a buoyancy aid. Yeah. Yeah. Which will help get through the peak in the yield curve, which is showing a sort of hump, a bit like a camel, Mm. between now and maybe the first quarter, second quarter next year. And then if the government policy works and inflation comes down, Bank of England policy works and inflation comes down, then you know, interest rates should come down. And I think one of the other features of life that's changed, certainly in my career, is that changes that used to take months now happen in nanoseconds. Mm. You saw that in the gilts market in October of last year, and I think that's true on the way up and on the way down. And markets can move now very quickly because of social media, digitalization, global markets. But certainly there'll be some subsectors where those yields aren't going to come in 
by March, right? Well, I think people are going to be very sceptical, aren't they, about social impact type funds because there's been a couple of quite well-publicised, or one well-publicised example of something that's gone terribly wrong. Not actually because there's anything wrong with the underlying business model, but perhaps the way it was executed was not done correctly. Mm, you're referring to Home Re. I wouldn't like to say which one I'm referring um, to, but that is a well-known one. And we'll have to wait and see what the results of their investigations are. But I think that's tarnished that particular part of the market quite considerably. Mm. Let's move the conversation over. I'm interested, you studied at Cambridge. Before you went to Cambridge, you had a music teacher. Yeah, Tell I me had about... several music teachers, actually. <laughs> I learned to play the piano at five. I can tell I had parents that wanted me to get on in the world. And I Did you a... want to learn it? How were you forced? Yes, I actually really like playing the piano. And one of my great regrets is that I gave up the piano at 13 to focus on the cello, which is not quite as easy no, it's not to quite play as well. But I played in the school orchestra and I really enjoyed that. I had a great music teacher at school, Alan Taylor, sadly no longer with us. He did wonderful things, like we sang as a school choir in Anthony Hopkins' A Tale of Growing at the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, wow. I remember singing there at 13. And we recorded Carmina Burana. And playing in the orchestra taught me the benefits of teamwork, quite interestingly. So once I've stopped being CEO next April, one of my ambitions is to spend more time practising the piano because practice does make perfect but mr taylor wasn't a fan of brian ferry though ah yes well in my sixth form we had to do a sort of general studies class and we were each asked to bring in a record and play a track and i brought in the second album from roxy music and famously well to me famously he said well really harry i'm very surprised quite shocked you brought in this rubbish and I saw him about 30 years later and said, oh, you might remember that you told me that Brian Ferry and Roxy Music were utter rubbish. And fortunately, he said, no, I can't remember that. Mm. Because to me, Brian Ferry and Roxy Music were the kings of glam rock. And he's aged really well. I think, yeah, Ferry doesn't quite get the plaudits that Bowie and Eno and others received, does he? No, I'm lucky enough to have met him a couple of times and he is really an uber cool man. He's aged quite gracefully. I think it's very fair to say. But your main musical interests that you're quite known for now, other than your appearances on Jazz FM, are around opera. Yeah. Well, how did you move from glam rock into opera? Well, they're both the same thing, really, aren't they? It's about performance <laughs> so. and, yeah. and costume and music and singing. And over time, I developed a real passion, I suppose, for opera, which to me combines the best of drama, theatre, music, and it talks about the basic human passions, lust, betrayal, envy, greed. And it's an art form that has a lot of problems. People think it's only for the... Only for posh people. Yes. And it's all about dressing up in dinner jackets and going to Glyndebourne. And secondly, I think opera is a bit scared of its own shadow and doesn't really do enough to promote itself as a wonderful art form. And thirdly, I think for young people in opera, it's particularly difficult. It was difficult even before the pandemic, let alone through it and afterwards. So in a fit of perhaps lunacy, perhaps enlightenment, I decided to launch the International Opera Awards in 2012 to raise the profile of opera, to promote it as a genre that's capable of being watched and to raise funds for young musicians as well as rewarding those who work in it and i think people do like to be rewarded so we're now in our 11th year and uh, it really has taken off with the opera community who really love it and we're now truly international last year we had our awards at the teatro real in madrid and this year they're at the teatro Vicli in warsaw and we have just closed 
the nominations for this year, and I'm pleased to say we've got 14,000 nominations from all over the world, and we'll be handing out the 20-plus awards in Warsaw on November the 9th. So if you're free, do feel free to come along. I might do, actually. I mean, Airfares uh, to Warsaw are cheap in November because it's quite cold. Probably cheaper than getting to Manchester, I suspect. But uh, no, it's fascinating. When I, I suppose I opened the door to jazz maybe about 13 years ago, having thought that was quite scary as a youngster. I do think that a lot of these genres of art, they just seem quite aloof and come across a little bit standoffish to people. And anything that could be done to break them down, I think is a good thing. Well, it depends on your view of culture. And here I'm going to borrow a phrase that I heard Eli Shafak, the brilliant Turkish writer, give, which is broadly the following. We live in an age of angst. You know, it's a digital world. People never stop looking at their telephones or their WhatsApp or their TikTok or Instagram. And in her view, and mine, the antidote to angst is culture. Mm. Whether that be a great book, a great film, a great opera, it can really take you out of yourself. It's classless because you can be from any layer or rank in society and enjoy culture. And I think there's something special about music. I think it was Shakespeare who talked about the harmony of the spheres. And sometimes that musical moment can actually transport you out of the humdrum and your worries and actually make you feel better. So I think that's a wonderful thing. And culture, from a political standpoint, we're very bad at supporting culture in this country. And, you know, Germany has 80, 80 sponsored opera companies. And we've had a complete meltdown about the allocation of funding to opera in this country which is nowhere near the levels of what it is in france or germany so there's much to be done and the more i can raise the profile of opera the more money i can distribute to people who need a helping hand at an early stage in their career or a later stage in the career the better i will feel about things and i've got some wonderful supporters and patrons who help me on that journey again just bring it back to real estate could people and i say people like yourself obviously you are but others as well could people be using art music culture more as an anchor tenant within regeneration it strikes me that very few cities have music policies that think about venues performance education and the obvious, not just direct economic, but indirect economic benefits that these things throw up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in my other property fund, the one that's unquoted, we do educational buildings. And the role of culture in higher education is very important, be it the arts, the drama, music schools, all of which need space from which to operate. There are examples in city centres, but it needs more prioritisation. And actually, in the age of AI... A lot of jobs that we have today will no longer exist. And I think there'll be a hell of a lot more focus on culture and creativity. And so these sort of skills are going to be essential for children born today or tomorrow, rather than my generation or your generation or next gen or Gen Z or baby boomers or whatever. Mm. You know, so I think this is really important. And actually, at the end of the day, culture is really, really important and needs to have a bigger role in British life in my humble opinion mm. well that's a very fair point well look let's leave it there i think we've covered tons of ground and thank you very much for a very honest very open conversation and some great anecdotes harry hyman lovely to see you thank you very much for coming on propcast i've been andrew teacher you can subscribe on apple spotify amazon all of those things that harry mentioned were 
warping young minds and taking up valuable time. But you can listen to these podcasts while you walk your dog because you can get some exercise as well. But we're grateful to you for listening. Do subscribe also to propertyweek.com for the latest news and updates. And we'll see you again very, very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.